This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The U.S. is facing a record-breaking number of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border, with some estimating that we're on track to reach a 20-year high. Unique to this year is that more and more desperate parents are opting to send their children into the United States alone, leaving thousands of children in government-run detention facilities that critics say are inhumane. The crisis presents a newly elected Biden administration with a humanitarian, political, and logistical challenge. And for those of us who care about justice and human rights, we have a lot of questions. Today's guest is here to provide valuable context to this conversation. This is Sounds Good. I'm Brandon Harvey. We know our community and our team wanted to learn more about what's happening at the border. So we invited expert and friend of the podcast, Jonathan Moya, to be our guide. Jonathan is the executive director of the organization Border Perspective. He grew up on the U.S.-Mexico border and his family still runs a church just minutes away from one of the busiest entry points at the border. Border Perspective leads service learning trips along the South Texas border to provide opportunities for participants to support local organizations that serve immigrants and to better understand the complexity of immigration on the border. The organization's work has been featured by Mashable and Univision, and Jonathan's perspective is just so invaluable as we seek to approach the immigration conversation with a sense of nuance, compassion, and a desire to understand. So before we dive in, I want to kind of give some useful background information. As of March 24th, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol agents were holding more than 5,000 unaccompanied children in custody, with another 11,900 children in custody of the Department of Health and Human Services. Journalists have not yet been permitted inside the detention facilities, but Lawyers who represent the children and lawmakers who have toured the camps say that they are being held in cramped and overcrowded conditions. Officials are still in the process of scrambling to respond. It's worth noting that this is not the first surge of unaccompanied migrant children to trigger a humanitarian crisis at the border. Similar crises occurred in 2014 under President Barack Obama and in 2018 and 2019 under President Donald Trump. Many of these migrants are coming from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, which for years have been suffering gang-related violence, government corruption, and some of the highest rates of poverty and violent crime in the world. And the pandemic and two hurricanes late last year have only exacerbated the region's dangerous or unlivable conditions that basically end up forcing many people to leave their countries. So I spoke with Jonathan to try to get a clearer picture of what's happening at the border to better understand what led to the current humanitarian crisis and how we can take action to support impacted families. Let's dive in. Jonathan, I am just so excited to have you back on the show. Welcome back to Sounds Good. And thank you for being here to dive into all of this with me. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be back and uh, reconnect about such just an important conversation that we get to have today. I've been paying a lot of attention to what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border right now. It's kind of, to some degree, my job to pay attention to news, especially when there are injustices happening. But to be honest, even though it's my job, even though I've been spending a lot of time paying attention, I felt like I don't really understand what's happening fully. And so the other day I reached out to you, asked if we could hop on a phone call so I could better understand what's happening. And immediately I was like, oh, Jonathan knows what's going on. I I trust his voice. And very quickly I was like, this needs to be 
a podcast conversation because I think others will appreciate this too. And so thank you for generously, you know, sharing your wisdom, your experiences. And I'll start off by also saying that uh, longtime listeners will remember that you were on the show before, years ago, as you were launching your organization, Border Perspective. And now it's years later and your organization has grown significantly. I, I don't think it's even gone like how you imagined it at all. I think that you it really started off as a, a small project and it turned into something much bigger. And so can you start off by just briefly breaking down your background and bringing us up to speed on how and why you founded Border Perspective. Yes, for sure. And so if you're an old listener, right? Yes, you will hopefully remember that conversation. And uh, basically in 2017, my brother and I were just kind of wrestling and most importantly, just, you know, chatting on a family chat and said, uh, we were discussing the things that were causing pain and uh, obviously points of conversation for us as Mexican-Americans, as uh, immigrants. And we realized that there was a, a misconception and misunderstanding uh, of the border region, especially the U.S.-Mexico border where we grew up. And so I kind of had an idea and I told my brother, hey, why don't we go on a trip? We both like photography and storytelling. And that was the beginning of a journey that was life transformational for me. It really changed the trajectory of my life. Uh, we didn't do this trip to start an organization, but it eventually turned into really mm, some of the most vital and meaningful work that I've been a part of in, in my life. And so uh, Border Perspective, in a sense, you know, after this border journey that we took and spent nine days on the border, just listening to stories and talking with people, uh, became an organization that now helps mobilize and educate uh, just a broader audience on really the misconceptions and uh, education around immigration and why people migrate and uh, most importantly uh, immersing people into the situation right so that they can come and learn from themselves and hopefully broaden their own perspective on such issues that we often only see through the media and so years later Brandon you know catching up like you said it yourself I did not envision or could plan right that we were going to be uh, in so invested in right in the front lines of uh, what has become, I would consider a, a long-term disaster on the border. And that is caused by just severe policy changes, political change in our nation. We are one of many organizations that are providing pivotal support, you know, as we continue to learn more about the crisis that is currently the U.S. and Mexico border. You went into your project years ago with the goal of just empathy and understanding. And that small first step ultimately led to you taking action, creating an organization, and creating this deeper change and inviting other people into that process. And I think that's really remarkable because I think all too often, we skip right to that last step of, I have to start something that, make, that makes a difference, that changes everything. But I think most of the time, we can actually all start off by just being curious and taking a step into that curiosity and asking questions and then maybe inviting people into that as well during that journey. And as we see problems, as we understand solutions, then that gives us the perspective to then take that action. And I love that that's the journey you went on because I think that's the journey we're all about to go on with this episode, hopefully, is that hopefully we'll we'll dive into some empathy, some understanding, and from that, we'll have a better perspective on the border, no pun intended, uh, and uh, we'll be able to create some change from there. I never thought that the processing after the trip would lead me to go way deeper than I ever anticipated. That was just my own misunderstanding even of the issues that were happening and were being caused at the border. And so the change that brought me to where I'm at today was just the desire to continue seeking and to continue wanting to be, to see difference, right? Um, to continue to be a part of alleviating suffering, which a lot of our work has turned into now. And, um, I never could have anticipated that that's what it was going to become. And it wasn't planned, but I think the project, this photography and storytelling project early on became really bigger than myself really early on because 
many more people who were not from the border or weren't raised there or have traveled there wanted to just learn more, wanted to go really beyond the headlines, right? And the snippets that we consume on uh, through the media and wanted to learn about the reality about just life on the U.S. and Mexico border. And I'll tell you, life is hard on the U.S. and Mexico border, but life is also beautiful. There's so much violence, but there is also so much peace. And oftentimes um, I deal with that very intentionally because if I only listen to the media, right, it's chaos. But my memories, my relationships, my friendships are the complete opposite. And so we have to be able to encounter and see the border as a place of in-between because literally and physically it is an in-between place. But also in our minds, we have to be able to allow the border to be that in-between place. And we have to weigh both the good and the bad in the same location. I love that. And I also want to acknowledge that, you know, I don't think that the media is doing a terrible job. They're just doing their job, which is to report on things that are news, with the emphasis being the word new and news. And that's the big problem we run up against with Good 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 every day is every day there is peace. Every day there is growth and progress towards goodness. Every day, a thousand planes take off and a thousand planes land safely. And it's those moments where things do not go as planned, where there is not peace, where the plane does not land safely that gets reported on because that's what is new. And so the problem is we as news consumers need to be mindful of the fact that we are just seeing what is reported as new. And when things stay status quo, and when the status quo is good, when there is peace and hopefulness as the status quo, that's not going to get reported on. And so we we strive to change that to some degree at Good, 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 um, and hopefully with this conversation. But that is so helpful to hear that perspective that both of those things can exist in this borderland. And so let's dive into the problems. But first, I, I almost want to set some like ground rules here. First of all, I want to say that you are far more of an expert than I am on any of this. And so if I get anything wrong, mischaracterize anything, etc., please correct me because I just want to use this as an opportunity to learn from you. Great. Yeah. I, I love that we can have a back and forth conversation. Me too. Uh, and then number two, I think that we all understand that there are some weird partisan nuances of this story. So I just want to like not beat around the bush. I want to just dive into this and say that I think most of us across the political spectrum, at least I can speak for myself and say that I didn't pay much attention at all to what was happening at the U.S.-Mexico border during Obama's two terms. I paid a little bit of attention, and I know, of course, there were activists and so many people who were paying attention. But for the most part, I think culturally, we weren't paying that much attention, especially when we compare that to the sudden amount of attention that we all paid during the Trump administration. And I think that sudden amount of attention we paid is understandable because of his the president's toxic rhetoric and in my opinion the apathy that he showed towards human rights violations and i think it would be fair to say that those were meant to grab attention he succeeded in that and all of us started paying more attention to what's happening but now the nuances come into play here because we're seeing this troubling news about what's happening on the border under the administration that defeated Trump in the election. And so, you know, there's, of course, the problematic aspects of, like, we see people on the right who seemingly didn't care at all during the last administration when there were problems on the border, now all of a sudden caring because, you know, their political enemies are in leadership. And then we're seeing silence for people on the left after years of anger um, and very loud anger about the Trump administration's handling of the things at the border. And then lastly, I do think that we have this great group of people uh, who are maybe handling this in a bit more of a thoughtful way. Because I don't want to throw everybody under the bus, you know, as either on that right side or on that left side. I think that our community in particular with Good, 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 from my conversations with people in our community, I think that we're seeing a need for caring for people and holding politicians accountable for creating solutions 
regardless of the political party. And that's kind of the nature that I want to have this conversation from of saying, we know that every leader has a lot of serious problems. And we also know that every leader has some opportunity to create solutions to problems. And so let's talk about people from a non-political perspective while acknowledging that political leaders can be deeply problematic and they need to be held accountable and they need to you know, be pushed to create solutions. I guess that's point number two. And then point number three, uh, I also want to acknowledge that this is, of course, an incredibly complex issue and there's no way we can dive into every nuance of this within our allotted time for this podcast conversation. I just want to say we're going to do our best and hopefully this is a starting point so that we're all more educated, we all have a little bit more empathy and understanding and we can go out into the world and be a part of solutions knowing that we know just a little bit more about what's happening at the border. Does all of that sound fair if I characterize this somewhat okay? I love where you're heading with this because so much of my perspective and I think the perspective of the border that I am so focused on and really want to highlight is that political change happens every you know political cycle, every four years. But life on the border in some ways remains constant. And sure, there's influxes of migrants or people or news and media showing up, but there's something about life that you know, I think it's, it's just worth highlighting and even changes that um, are worth talking about. So I, I love where, where this is heading. Perfect. Okay. This sounds great. So without any further ado, let's dive into what are the problems that we're seeing on the border? And I know that there are perhaps constant problems that have been true over the last you know, several decades. Um, but what are kind of some of the new problems that we're seeing and, and we're kind of having conversations about right now? Living and growing up in the border of South Texas, primarily in the kind of the McAllen, Texas area, um, migration has always been a part of the conversation. Um, you know, crossing the border back and forth and having um, just life be bicultural and bi-national. It's just a natural form of life. It's embedded into our lifestyle on the border. And so for many people, uh, you know, if you're from the border, that's just life. It's just regular day by day, you know, things that you do. If you're not from the area, um, then it's intriguing to try and understand that concept, right? And so I recall even um, just growing up, just the the fact that I would have to, in school, only speak English, but at home speak Spanish. Or even our meals were different, right? Like what I ate at school versus what I ate at home. And so it's interesting because migration has always been a part in, of the border culture. Uh, obviously, not to the point or uh, the numbers that we're seeing lately. But migration um, and stories of migration and people leaving their country to seek something different, something better, opportunity, safety, refuge has always been a part of the DNA of the border. And so obviously, there's many things that I believe are causing the higher numbers now than they had in the past. Right. And so for me, everything on the border started to change really after 9-11. I mean, you and I remember 9-11, right? Maybe some of the listeners are still younger, but 9-11 played a significant role on the border because um, I remember before that happened, security wasn't as intense on the border. Uh, even I recall going back and forth to just shop or eat uh, with my family and you could just you know, your word was valued and was truth because if a border patrol officer asked you, are you, a, are you a U.S. citizen to come back into the U.S.? And you said, yes, sir. That was enough. After 9-11 and after uh, the terrorist attacks, that changed. That's when uh, more um, border walls started going up, more of the fencing. That's when more security and documentation was needed to cross the border. And in many ways, there was just a, a hesitancy to, to even allow less migrants, um, refugees to access U.S. soil. And so those, um, I believe that 9-11 really caused and was the beginning of what we're even seeing now, right? I think there's just a, 
a certain prejudice against uh, immigrants and refugees, but it just didn't start in this last political cycle. I think there's we have to look at the decade long right understanding and even just like how we view these historical events and how they shaped our culture, how they shape our minds, and even how they are shaping policy today. The migration that we're seeing on the border right now, it's increased because consider the pandemic that we're in. Consider the uh, devastating um, hurricanes that just recently in the last year hit Central America. Consider um, just the, the, the corruption and the affluence of drug cartel and violence and gangs. But I want to point out too that with drugs and the reason that exists is because there's also a huge demand in North America for this, right? So we cannot just assume that there's violence and, and drugs uh, in Central America that's causing a lot of insecurity and issues without also putting ourselves in the place that we're in a country that demands, you know, a lot of what's actually being trafficked through Central America into North America. So, Many of the people that we're seeing are coming from the North Northern Triangle countries, right, which is Central America, and, and they're in many ways escaping a lot of the things that we're talking about. And so there is a, a really high number of migrants currently coming to the border. These are preliminary numbers for March, but uh, it's estimated that about 170,000 migrants that were taken into custody. And this is the highest monthly total since 2006. Are there similar spikes that have happened in past years? Or is this really a, a very unique spike? Yeah, so there are uh, the spikes have come. Uh, they came during the Trump uh, presidency as well. Uh, 2018 and 19, you know, we see similar spikes. What is different this last month is the amount of unaccompanied minors. Mm. Uh, it's estimated that there's about 19,000 um, minors, unaccompanied minors that are actually, um, you know, in custody of the U.S. government currently. And so that has been different. That's been a huge spike compared to other years. That's super interesting. So what I'm hearing is that one of the key problems that we're facing is that acceptance, whether it's cultural or just like legal numbers wise of immigrants in the U.S. is at an all time low. While conditions are in place that basically are leading to a lot of migrants coming to the U.S. at an all time high. And so we're seeing a combo problem of those two, you know, numbers being on polar opposite ends of the spectrum. And it's worth acknowledging that both of those are happening at the same time. And both of those are problems that are intersecting. Exactly. And I think that's the, uh, that's the middle ground, right? Because the border is a, it's an in-between place. And so much of the focus is the statistics and the numbers at the border. But we have to unpack and we have to really look outside of the border to try and understand the complexity of these issues. So we look at Central America, we have to look at the root cause, right, that that is causing migration, while at the same time, we have to look at policy that the United States government is creating and putting in place that eventually leads to the middle ground that is the U.S. and Mexico border. If I was to kind of sum up and almost categorize the problems that we see right now, it seems to me that we have two key problems here. The first problem is that there is a reason that people are leaving, fleeing their countries in search of somewhere that they think will be safer. And they are so concerned for their lives, safety, economic security, that they're willing to take the dangerous trip and risk the dangers on that journey and at the final destination in order to reach somewhere safer. So we've got the problems kind of at people's original home. Uh, the next problem that I see that we probably have is at the U.S.-Mexico border, it seems that by policy decisions or by influx or by lack of something, we are just seeing an immense amount of people who need shelter, need court dates, need lawyers, need food, uh, need 
COVID uh, supplies, uh, that we have an actual crisis just at this actual border because that's where the bottleneck is. Do those two things sound fair, well-represented, like they encompass the whole problem to you? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a great starting place. I think to begin to unpack and understand. I think that uh, there's many more steps and layers that can be you know addressed beyond that. But I think for the sake of just our conversation, I think it's a uh, it's a good place for us to begin to try and understand. And I know that there's a lot of resources out there that I think can help people as they begin to unpack more of what's really happening. My hope is that maybe by shining a light on these, it'll allow us to dive into the solutions better. And as people are seeing solutions weeks and months from now, we can all understand what problems they're specifically solving and which ones they're not. And knowing that we kind of need a little bit of a of a, a multifaceted, multi-layered approach to it. So let's dive into first kind of the deeper problem of why people feel the need to flee their homes and look for a better life and and you know in this particular conversation are turning to the United States as uh, their final destination. What are a few of those those reasons that people would do that? In some cases there's a fear of persecution. Persecution it could be based on on race, nationality, oftentimes to political opinions, right? And so uh, we're seeing uh, many cases and stories of the migrants that are currently reaching the borders that are categorized right under under just the fear of persecution. Uh, these would be uh, migrants that uh, are motivated to leave because they face uncertainty, because they are being targeted, because they are facing a a different reality that would really put their family or themselves in a very vulnerable condition. Is there like a percentage <laughs> that you would almost be able to give to that? Or is that a hard, is that a hard question? <laughs> a little bit of a hard question, uh, I would say. And I do not have the exact, an exact number, but um, when you look at just the, from a developmental perspective, right? Like, just the conditions, economical conditions that most of these countries are in, they're very low on the development scale. And so uh, then you throw violence and crime into all of this, right? And you throw corruption and you throw um, in just the, the insecurity and the organized crime, then, you know, there's things that are, that you can tangibly measure, but then there's also things like natural disasters that, no country can really prepare for, right? And then all of a sudden becomes a crisis and then uh, that causes people to to want to look for, for a, a different place. And I think it's also worth mentioning along with, you know, natural disasters that we're seeing an increase in natural disasters and, you know, all the evidence points to that being caused by man-made climate change. The U.S. is disproportionately responsible for carbon emissions and, a lot of these countries on the, I guess for lack of a better phrase, lower development scale are disproportionately underrepresentative in how much carbon they're releasing into the atmosphere. A lot of this environmental impact is caused by us in the US, but is affecting other people, which I think is an important thing to you know, keep in mind. Just because we're not impacted by those, or we're not affected by them doesn't mean that that's not happening. Sometimes we don't even realize. I, I recall last at the end of last summer, right during uh, towards the end of hurricane season, there was some coverage about these natural disasters. But I think it's even now in April, right, several months later, that we're starting to really see the aftermath and the cause of uh, what happened in Central America because it's now arriving at our border, right? Mm. People because of those dire circumstances, um, are arriving. And so that's one of the many reasons why people are fleeing. That's super helpful. And then you also kind of alluded to violence. And some of this is violence kind of perpetuated by governments, but it sounds like a lot of this is perhaps gang activity, drug-related. Is that accurate? Completely accurate. Um, Most of Central America is also just a a pathway for uh, drugs from South America into North America. And so we're a consuming nation, right, of good and bad, 
right? And um, the need for the drug movement from various countries in South America through Central America are also impacting, you know, in many ways migration because um, there's local gangs, local cartels that control these regions. And many, in many cases, these are, you know, when we look at like homicide rates and how high they are in these Central American countries, it's due to the movement of illegal activity, which is illegal drugs, substances, uh, and, and sometimes even trafficking as well, right? And so um, those are all impacts that eventually lead to the migration of people. And I think that is underlaying uh, factors that I think we have to be able to witness and learn about so that we can understand why people are fleeing their nation. So knowing that these are kind of the problems that are leading to people leaving their countries and embarking on a dangerous journey, what are the solutions to those things? Because those things are all happening before anybody reaches the United States. And you know, this, this episode is kind of presuming that many of our listeners are living in the United States. I know that my choice to you know, try to be sustainable and to lobby companies to be more sustainable, that plays a small role on the environmental side of things. That doesn't feel like I'm doing all that much. And it feels like it's not touching a lot of the problems. What are the possible solutions? So that we can't get into the specifics right now, but like where is there opportunity to create solutions to these problems from where we live today? For sure, for sure. I would say one of the the main advocacy things that I've been a part of is just uh, promoting uh, root cause-based initiatives, right? And really advocating so that our current administration uh, will address what is causing migration from Central America. And so obviously these things um, you know, if we list them out is how do we provide better health care? How do we provide more secure nations? How do we provide better government? How do we provide and uh, more jobs? And I'm not, uh, I, I say all of this, but I'm not saying that that is the role or the job of the United States as a whole. I think it's just how do we allow people from those countries and nations to be a part of the conversation? And in many ways, we're seeing that the U.S. does have a ton of influence in how a lot of USAID is distributed and funded. And so how do we hold and work with leaders uh, to be accountable so that we are addressing those issues that are eventually impacting people to leave their country? And so is there a, way, a better infrastructure and accountability system that we can have in place so that people will be able to thrive in their own nation, right? Versus even considering leaving and migrating somewhere else. I think it's worth acknowledging that the U.S. has done an incredible job in many avenues with foreign assistance. It makes up less than 1% of our total U.S. budget, uh, but it can actually go a long way to creating solutions. And I've seen that firsthand on the ground in different parts of Asia and Africa, but I know it's also true. But it's also worth acknowledging that the U.S. has used this same budget to do a lot of harm to countries in the past and have done a lot of terrible you know, foreign policy uh, and have hurt a lot of people. And so there's some nuances to this, but I also feel confident that with the right accountability, we can work to create positive solutions that target the right problems and you know, aren't lining the pockets of corrupt leaders, but are instead uh, actually helping individual people. But that that's the nuances of this. It's not as simple as, oh, well, we just need to like help provide healthcare, help, you know, provide, you know, reinforcements for people. It, there's there's nuance to it, but I think it's something that is completely possible to solve. And that's one of the the things that we have to understand about migration and even I mean, we're looking at migration through the lens of the border right now, right? And we focus so much on the border because that's where these high numbers and t statistics of people, that this is where people are. But really, we have to look at where they're coming from because that's the root, right? That's the root of what's causing them uh, instability, insecurity, that eventually causes people to think about finding somewhere different or, or finding a, a different place to belong. And so for me, it's really so much of, of the news or is on the border. And I think it has to be because it's the entry point to our, to our, the country. But at the same time, we can't just pinpoint that the issue is at the border because I think so much policy has to 
And I think this is where we have to hold our leaders accountable to how do we invest correctly, right? How do we fund correctly initiatives that will help people stay where they live? And um, like I said, I do not see the U.S. being the fix all right to, to every global problem but i do see us having massive influence and we already are a huge founder of all those initiatives in many ways and so um like you said corruption it exists all over the globe but we have to be be able to uh, hold leaders accountable so that this is implemented well We're going to take a quick break from our conversation with Jonathan, and we will be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Can you imagine taking peaches, avocados, or plums and throwing away the fruit only to use the pit? Oh my gosh, imagine doing that with an avocado. That would be terrible. But here's the thing. That's exactly what's done to the coffee bean, which is actually not a bean, but a seed with a juicy pulp that surrounds the bean called cascara. 25 billion pounds of green coffee were produced globally last year but four times as much cascara was also produced as a byproduct. Most cascara is literally thrown away, piled into literal mountains in landfills, producing methane gas equivalent to the emissions of 3 million cars each year. But the folks at Riff have a solution to this problem. We love that. They're upcycling this delicious cascara into a carbon-neutral, plant-powered energy drink called Energy Plus. Cascara is an incredible gift of nature. It's delicious, naturally sweet, and naturally caffeinated. They turned it into Riff Energy Plus Immunity, which has 120 milligrams of caffeine, a daily dose of vitamin C, and comes in three delicious flavors. You can learn more about Riff's mission and their new Riff Energy Plus Immunity by visiting letsriff.com. And you can also use the code goodgoodgood for 20% off your order. One more time, that's letsriff.com with the code good, good, good. Did you know that there's a holiday to celebrate bookstores? Independent Bookstore Day is a celebration that takes place at bookstores across the country in April every year. And this year, Libro FM, the audiobook service that splits profits with local bookstores, has an incredible Independent Bookstore Day offer. When you spend $15 at any local bookstore between April 24th and April 26th, you can submit your purchase details for a free audiobook from Libro FM. Shop online or visit your local bookstore and hang on to your receipt. As a thank you for supporting bookstores, you'll get to pick an audiobook from 12 choices across a range of genres, including middle grade, YA, romance, true crime, and more. For more details, instructions, and the list of audiobooks to choose from, visit libro.fm slash IBD. The offer is valid worldwide. Just submit your receipt and choose your audiobook no later than 9 p.m. Eastern time on Monday, April 26th. And if you're new to Libro FM, as a special offer for Sounds Good listeners, Libro FM is offering two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership with the code GOOD. All you have to do is visit Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm, and use the promo code GOOD to get started with two audiobooks and to help support the show. I know that there are some problems that are best solved with 
government, whether it's our government or somebody else's government, creating solutions to those problems. But I also know that, you know, there's a lot of problems that can be solved with other solutions. Are there other ways to target those deeper upstream problems outside of just advocating to our members of Congress, our senators, our politicians? I truly believe so. I can uh, think about various organizations that are doing just incredible work, right? I think um, I think about just issues that are impacting, uh, for example, just like women's health issues or, or, or organizations that are providing in many ways food assistance, right? Or that are providing really long-term care and working with farm workers in, in Central America, right? So that they can eventually sell their grow their crops sell their crops and make a sustainable living and so i think there's both faith-based and non-faith-based initiatives that i think we can consider and look at and even say how do we put our funding and even some of our our own personal support to really help organizations that are working long-term in these countries so that um you know we can continue to alleviate some of uh this issue and i think so much of it, yes, on a grander scale, it is policy, but on a micro scale, I think it, it's also us. How, mm. where do we, where are we investing our money? How are we supporting, you know, those who are doing the pivotal work in some of these nations? And we'll make sure to add some of those organizations that people can support in the show notes for this episode so that they can dive in a little bit deeper and find ways to support as well as, you know, numbers you can call to contact your representatives and stuff, because I think that all of this can be done in sync. I think that that's a really helpful perspective uh, on, you know, the original upstream problems that people are facing in their home countries that are leading them to that are leading them to travel to the U.S. border. And now I want to dive into the U.S. border. You know, what are the specific problems uh, that we're seeing, especially right now? And what are some potential solutions to those problems? The best way that I can categorize what's happening at the U.S. border, right, U.S.-Mexico border right now, is that there's three tiers. Uh, one tier is that um, there is a, um, a huge increase in unaccompanied minors who are in federal detention. and so. That's one tier of families in need. Another tier is those who are being deported back uh, because technically during this pandemic, there's a policy called Title 42 that is uh, expelling many of those uh, families who are seeking asylum back into Mexico or being deported back to their home country. And then there is a small percentage of um, families, especially those with small children under seven years old that are being allowed in, right? And so these families are overwhelming shelters on the, you know, on the U.S. side of the border. And so there's those three categories um, are in many ways being caused by just the influx of migrants arriving at the border. One of the things that we have to understand is that many of these families and migrants that are arriving at the border a lot of them are not newly arriving families. Um, we're seeing them as a newly entering families into the U.S. because of um, there was a policy called MPP or Remain in Mexico. And the Biden administration did away with that right at the beginning, uh, you know, I think about a month in, into the, um, the presidency. And so that actually um, allowed about 25,000 people that were in this uh, program to now have access to the United States and uh, go into a and continue a lawful immigration process. Title 42 and MPP was really uh, in many ways preventing people from reaching U.S. soil. We have to take into consideration the fact that our own policy was keeping people on the Mexican side of the border, now that one of these policies is no longer and it doesn't exist, we're seeing that these are some of the families that are coming through and also newly arriving families. Interesting. So this was, it's essentially like we just weren't seeing the problem because they were 10 miles away from us, uh, but they were always there uh, and now they're arriving. So we're seeing those numbers come into play. Exactly. And so um, I think you said it well. We weren't seeing it on a national level, but doesn't mean that the migrants weren't there. 
throughout the last year of the pandemic. I mean, it was estimated in just one town across the border where I grew up from, there's anywhere between five and 7,000 migrants in overwhelmed shelters and even uh, camp encampments along the border. And so just because we weren't seeing them cross into U.S. soil didn't mean that people stopped coming. It's just that our policy was preventing people from actually reaching and or going through a lawful process. The crisis has always been there. It was just the Trump presidency contained it on the other side of the border. Yes. I think there's a lot of critics right now that are saying, well, it's the Biden administration, the open border mentality, the right, the whatever you want to, you know, categorize this administration as, but it never went away. Yeah. It, it was only shifted to the Mexican side of the border. So I, I am learning that as a white straight man, I don't need to be somebody who plays devil's advocate. But in this scenario, I, I, I am my like devil's advocate moment is just what about the people who say, well, if Biden also kept it strict, then people would learn not to come to the U.S.-Mexico border and that we don't accept people and then we wouldn't have this problem. Like what if the U.S. was super consistent and for 30 years we didn't let people in at all? Would that solve any problems? I would say to that is that I work with somebody and I've worked with somebody in the past, her name's Sarah Miller, who runs a, a refugee, a global refugee ministry. She's a U.S. director, but she worked in Germany in the early 1990s. And um, I, I share about her experience because she used to work in asylum with asylum seekers in Germany in 1990. And she said the German government, because of their geographical location, knew how much of an influx of migrants they were having, that they put an infrastructure in place to help people lawfully navigate this process. During that process, there was medical support, education support, like feeding programs, shelter programs. But if you qualified, if your case was credible, right, to go through this process, what we're seeing on the border right now, nothing's existent. Mm. I think we can, and there's room for us to be more strict if the right procedures and processes were in place. But there's a lack of a system, period. Got it. <laughs> and so and so I think even if for 30 years we followed the same process that would allow people to fairly go through a process, heck, then anybody and everyone can come through that process. But the process alone, we know that it's shaped to weed people who right don't have a credible fear for asylum or refuge out of, you know, but we don't have that in place right now. That was maybe a missing piece for me. It's just understanding that infrastructure and, and how it can go. It's that we, we all together lack policies in general that, that would make sense for the 21st century. And because of that, there is no deep, it's not like we're living in a default where nobody can come in the border. It's just like we're living in this default of not having any rules. Like we need to have policies in general. That's why it's so devastating that sports arenas are being turned into detention for unaccompanied minors in Dallas and in San Antonio and in San Diego. We don't even have the infrastructure to follow uh, the Flores Agreement, which is a policy right that would protect. Uh, the minors, just human rights, period, that they should not be in detention for more than 72 hours. Well, we don't have the adequate infrastructure to do that. And so um, I'm not opposed to, and, and, I, and I like to engage in conversations where people have that perspective because in many ways, once you give me your time, you'll actually see that I maybe agree more with even your perspective. But when you understand the conflict and even the the crisis, you'll realize that what the posture or position that you want to take is nearly impossible because, you know, it's like, how do you even begin creating that? Yeah, that is super helpful. It, it is always helpful when you're thinking about policy to think about like, what would actually make this policy possible? What would actually allow that? Is this practical? Yeah, that just really helped unlock something in my brain. Uh, and I think I think one of the deeper problems here is probably just that 
the U.S. has gotten really out of practice in creating solutions to problems. I think that Congress is pretty locked up. Uh, there aren't a lot of policies that are being created uh, in general. But based off of U.S. and international law, if you are seeking asylum, you have the opportunity to go through essentially for lack of a better word, like the refugee resettlement process. I don't think that's the technical phrase at all. So some people qualify for that. They're reaching the border and they legally should be granted the opportunity to make their case in front of a judge. Some people do not. There's kind of some nuances to that. But regardless of the actual policy situation, I think it would be fair to say that there is a humanitarian necessity to meet people in this situation with compassion, with the minimum resources for people to stay healthy, alive, treated humanely. I know that we could have a whole conversation about the policy side, and I think that we should uh, in the future, but it seems like one of the big problems that we're having right now is just uh, the ability to treat people humanely. Is that accurate? For sure. And, and I would say that it's because we're dealing with a broken immigration system. Um, and a broken immigration system and policies that in many cases, and as we've seen over the last several years, are placing many families, especially women and kids who are vulnerable and inhumane and dire situations. And so many of these families do have a credible fear. And so something that I like to advocate for and something that I share with people is that I just want people to have a fair process. I want to trust our government system and immigration system enough, right? And, and this is why I'm, I advocate for just we have to be able to do the hard work so that families who have a credible fear can go through the lawful process and eventually be granted asylum if it's credible, right? And so the system has to allow for that. But our asylum-seeking process and system is almost non-existent. And so... When you mix that together with an entire broken immigration process, then we're literally just addressing this as a crisis completely. And we're never going to be able to address it long term. And so that's where the path for us to choose has to be the path that is going to help us create a sustainable asylum process that will allow families with a credible fear to go through the lawful process that will eventually they get to present their case, they get to go before a judge, and uh, that judge then, right, through the fair process, will be able to dictate kind of what happens next. When we talked on the phone before, you talked about this idea that you've worked for years with other nonprofits in disaster zones, responding to natural disasters and the thing is, usually you can address that problem, solve the problem, and then you know the disaster doesn't come back. But what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border, you say, is that it's a constant, consistent humanitarian crisis that is just not going away. And we can't just keep on putting a Band-Aid on it. We have to create a systemic change. Part of my experience in the last decade or so has been working in uh, natural disasters areas in um, in Haiti, right after the earthquake, uh, uh, you know, after the hurricanes in in, in the Gulf, and, and even tornado relief, and um, you know, in, in kind of middle America, and the crisis on the border is different. Uh, you know, uh, when you have a natural disaster, you know, there's you come in, you bring volunteers, you bring resources, and you rebuild. You know, five to eight years later, you have a community back to how it was. Well. At the border, you can't necessarily treat it like a disaster. Is this this more just? It's a long term disaster rather than just the crisis. I think we can categorize of our this. own making to some degree. Yeah, for sure, exactly. Because I'll say it again: our broken immigration system and policies is placing people, especially those who are extremely vulnerable and inhumane in dire situations. And when was the last time that we changed our immigration? policies? Because it seems to me that Congress hasn't really enacted any significant changes in, dare I say, decades? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I was listening to something the other day, and there's these trigger words, right, that that maybe 
for some of us raise red flags or, or, or bring about certain thoughts or emotion. And um, even in government, I think when you hear the word amnesty, when you hear immigration reform, automatically, right, depending on where you stand, whether you're on the blue side or the red side or what, you know, presidential candidate you're supporting, it's almost like, oh, we don't really want to go there. But what we're facing on the border should draw us nearer to wanting to find a solution because the coalition of senators going down to the border and showcasing kind of this warlike zone right on the Rio Grande and, and mobilizing the media to showcase their journey is one side of the story. While at the while at the same time that that news conference was happening, I have a friend who um, was also water skiing on the Rio Grande. You know, so we have to be able to showcase the good and the bad. Yes, there is a dire crisis because there's a huge influence of migrants, but at the same time, that is not the only reason or only scenario that should be showcased about the border. So our leaders have to be able to do the hard work. And I think it, in many ways, we have to keep our leaders accountable to do that. That's really, really helpful. And so it, when we talk about the crisis at the border, the reason that we have this you know, natural disaster metaphor of what's happening literally on the border is because of broken policies. And those need to be solved because that's an upstream problem, just like what's happening in people's home countries is an upstream problem. So that's a that's a whole layer that I think that you know we all get to play a role in advocating for. We all get to look for people who are leading the way on those solutions. But let's also talk about what can be done to, I guess for lack of a better word, like put a Band-Aid on the problem right now. How can we respond to people and their individual needs right now? Because somebody who is scared of getting COVID at the U.S.-Mexico border doesn't have a place to sleep, is concerned about the health of their children. Uh, that person is in need of care, compassion, empathy, supplies. Sure, they would have liked a policy solution uh, several months ago or several decades ago. But right now, they just need their needs met. And so what can we do to make sure that we're meeting those needs on a few different layers? What are the possible solutions that we have here? I love where you're going with this because um, as much as we focus on the long-term impact of all of this that we all need and want to see, I think there's also just immediate need that uh, uh, and support that is needed. And so I would say that one of the things that we're, uh, involved in right now is we see a huge need in local shelters on the U.S. side of the border. So something that we're doing at Border Perspective is we're actually calling upon uh, volunteers to come and, you know, on and, and respond to this border crisis by volunteering your time. And so I know that through Border Perspective, you can come volunteer at a local shelter in South Texas. But at the same time, I recently saw this morning that Catholic Charities in San Antonio, Texas is looking for volunteers to help with unaccompanied minors because they have an arena and they need volunteers to help care for these unaccompanied minors. At the same time, there's a group, uh, a large group of hundreds of displaced migrants on the Mexican side of the border that are in dire need of basic necessities from hygiene care to food to shelter to water. Um, something that we're doing at Border Perspective is we created an Amazon wish list. You know, people can buy diapers and baby um, clothing and, and milk and bottles and Basic, the most basic necessities to survive is what we're also, you know, just trying to provide people with. We know, and I'm challenged as I lead Border Perspective by being involved in this long-term change and impact, but I cannot look away at the current and dire need right now. As much as we have to provide humanitarian aid, we also have to continue to advocate for long-term and sustainable change. Super helpful. And so it's great to know that we've got this kind of systemic thing of creating policy change. There's also the opportunity for the government to send some of this immediate aid separate from the systemic policy change. It sounds like the president deploying kind of 
almost like FEMA response uh, is an opportunity where, you know, he stepped up to the plate and said, we're going to help solve these problems. And then we've got individual organizations like yours, and we've got uh, other nonprofits and churches and shelters who are stepping up to the plate. uh, And we have the opportunity to support them. Is there anything else that you think is helpful about this? What about uh, just the simple communication? Because you talked at the beginning about how we have, uh, a problem with the news, you know, perhaps misrepresenting what's going on for numerous reasons. What can we all be doing with our voices, our platforms, our Instagram stories to be telling the right kinds of stories or to bring some underrepresented perspectives to our friends and families? Along with what you just shared, Brandon, I just I want to thank you for inviting me to this conversation because one of the things that I've been wrestling with a bit is that many people who are are the voice or are the kind of go-to people for this type of conversation, they know immigration and they know numbers and statistics very well, especially from an intellectual type of perspective. But And so I know that I'm growing myself in that area, but at the same time, I have a lot of field experience. And we are working constantly and long-term in the region. And so I do see that the border perspective oftentimes um, is not represented. I think this conversation in many ways is being led by people that are great at their jobs, right? I, I don't want to devalue what they're doing, but I think we also have to have not just the t- statistics and numbers, but we have to resonate with the rawness and the stories and the hardship of these long-term workers who are sacrificially you know, involved in this type of work every single day. And so I would say for those of you who are listening, like, just find organizations that are on the ground, find organizations that are doing the deep work, the voices that are bringing about and shining. Maybe it's not mainstream, but I think, um, like you said, there are organizations that are doing unrepresented work, you know, that need to be highlighted. And so uh, I know that we're trying to do that as best as possible. Well, managing a humanitarian crisis among uh, the southern border is hard to be involved in the work and also right to really uh, compose social media graphics and, and, and communication. But uh, we're glad that we're able to do that in a way uh, that we can continue to educate people, not only by inviting them in, but by also sharing uh, content that will help them to unpack and understand uh, some of the realities that we are seeing and facing. As we close up this conversation, I want to just say this has been so helpful for me to understand the kind of nuances of these problems, understanding a few of the layers of what these problems are, some of the solutions. And I think that this is going to allow me in the coming weeks when I see Instagram posts, when I see nonprofits, when I see activists, when I see policy suggestions and news stories, to be able to understand you know, where these are applying, how these are going to play a role in creating solutions and what I can do to be a part of that. And as a reminder, we're going to be putting all of these action steps and possible ways to make a difference in our show notes so that everybody can get involved, make a difference. We'll probably turn this into an Instagram post. And I also just want to say that there's so much more that uh, I'm sure we didn't get to talk about, uh, but hopefully this is a great first step in an ongoing conversation. And Jonathan, I'll, I'll ask you, is there anything else that that you want to say before we close out? Because you've already just been so generous and helpful with uh, your wisdom and your perspective. Again, thank you so much for this conversation. I think uh, a great way to continue learning is um, you can follow us at Border Perspective on Instagram um, or throughout various social media networks. And we're always trying to showcase not only the work that we're a part of, uh, but also share resources that will continue to draw you hopefully deeper into uh, the immigration and uh, border crisis that is currently happening right now, but has been ongoing um, for us, right, who are continuing to work along the border. And so um, I would just encourage you to continue to lean in. I think if there's something that's been pivotal about this last year for all of us is that we all have just a lot of room for growth. And I know that 
we can't dive in into all the things right now. You know, at its time, I think we all have the opportunity to, to dive in maybe just a little bit deeper. Maybe it's just that one extra book. Maybe it's that one extra podcast. Maybe it's by just giving that one time, right? Uh, but I think we can continue to be involved, create change, and be a part of, of something that that is way bigger than all of us. And I think that that's my encouragement for all, for everybody. Jonathan, thank you so much for the important work you do and for sharing today. This has been such a great conversation and I'm so grateful we got to have it. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Brandon. That's Jonathan Moya, Executive Director of Border Perspective. Check out the work that they do to support families at the border by visiting their website, borderperspective.org. Follow them on Instagram at at Border Perspective and follow Jonathan at at Jonathan Moya. We also included some background reading and direct links to action steps in this week's show notes. So you'll want to check those out in your podcast player. Please consider making a donation to Border Perspective or buying something from their Amazon wish list. It can really make a difference. I also want to acknowledge that in the last week since we recorded this episode, Jonathan's dad, Reverend Hugo Moya, tragically passed away. He served the immigrant community through his church for immigrants in South Texas and also led the local team for those participating in border perspective trips. If you feel moved by Jonathan's work, you can pay tribute to his father by donating to the ongoing work of the Moya family through their memorial fund. You can find the link in our show notes as well. This podcast was created by Good Good Good. At Good Good Good, we help you feel more hopeful and do more good. You can find more good news and ways to make a difference in our weekly email newsletter, our beautiful print good newspaper, or online at goodgoodgood.co. This episode was created by Kaylee Thompson, Megan Burns, and me, Brandon Harvey. It was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios, and you can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. If you want to support the show, there are two things you can do. The first is tell people about it. Whether you share the link from Spotify or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts, or you go to our Instagram and you share our posts where we highlight content from each episode, that can make a huge difference in helping more people find good news and together take good action. Also, another great way to make sure that you are staying in touch with us is to hit the follow button wherever you listen to podcast. That way you'll get every new episode of Sounds Good delivered straight to your phone while you sleep. And with that, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and find one way to make a difference for people seeking refuge. And we'll be back next week with more good news and good action. Sound good? <laughs>